Well, hello, people in the room or on the stream, wherever this is finding you. And I want to second Jamie's welcome to you, especially if you're new. Uh, it really is great to have people to come and check these things out for the first time. And if um, that's a bit like, if you're a bit like Ian was, coming to check things out a bunch of years ago, um, hope you haven't walked out, hope you can um, stick it out. In fact, hope this will be very helpful for you as you consider um, this question. When we asked a bunch of coasties, what would make God good news to you? It's not really surprising to me anyway that we would get this response. If God was more chill like Buddha. Chill is a big aspiration about life on the coast, isn't it? It's something that we like to describe ourselves as, especially in contrast to that uptight, stressed out city down the road. Yeah? We're chill, we're different to them. And in fact, chill is something that goes with coastal life. And the further you go up the coast, the more chilled people get. I used to work in the music industry and was working with a muso from Ballina. And I remember saying to this guy, Sam, hey Sam, what are you up to today? And he took a bite into his organic apple, chewed, smiled with his eyes closed and said, breathing. <laughs> that was his big goal for the day, right? He was such a chilled guy and he was such a likeable guy. Chilled people usually are, aren't they? There's a reason it's aspirational. Chilled friends that you feel at ease with in their company. I can just be myself. I don't have to worry about intensity. Chilled babies, maybe, that sleep through the night. You know, you hear of some of those and you're envious of them. <laughs> I'm envious of the babies you've got, man. You've got chilled babies. Um, chilled bosses. Um, bosses who aren't on your back, telling you how to do things all the time. They just let you be. Chilled is a good thing. It's a very coastal thing. Would it be good news if God was more chill like Buddha? Came this response. Now, my plan today isn't actually to go into a detailed compare and contrast of Buddhism and Christianity, because I don't think that's what is driving this response. There are some people on the coast who are legit Buddhists, who take the teachings of Buddhism very seriously, but many more on the coast are just attracted to the Buddhist vibes. They couldn't tell you what the Four Noble Truths are, or the Eightfold Path, or the Five Precepts. It's much more of a, a pop Buddhism. It might take the shape of a statue by your front door or by the pool. I had a friend who moved up from Sydney to the coast and looked through a bunch of houses as he was doing that and was surprised at just how many houses have a statue in them. And I don't think it's because they're necessarily serious Buddhists. I think it's emblematic of chilled vibes that we long for in our homes. And in our relationships, peace and contentment. And it maybe symbolises a philosophy on life where you don't want to be too pushy, you don't want to be too judgy, you don't want to make it your business to get into the business of others. You just want to live by the motto of living and let live. And there's something quite attractive about that, quite appealing about that. Would it be good news if God was more like that? Just the kind of live and let live, chilled God. Why would someone wish that was the case? Clearly, some people think that would be good news. Well, 
I want to suggest it's maybe because we have a picture of God which pictures him as harsh, critical, overbearing, party pooping, you know, stickler for the rules who's just intent to make our lives religiously miserable. And if that's the picture of God that you have, no wonder you go, man, I just, it'd be good news if God chilled out. Well, what I want to put to us today is it wouldn't be good news if God chilled out, but it's good for us when we actually see God for who he truly is. And I want to let Jesus challenge the picture that we might have of God. Jesus, in this part of the Bible that we're going to look at, presents a God who you wouldn't describe as chill, something much better. And I want to do that by taking us through a description of God under four headings, four words, not chill, but four other words used to describe God. Here's the first one, surprising. Surprising. See, the context of this parable that we're about to look at is significant. That is the historical context. As Ian said, many people think of the Bible as just a bunch of religious, spiritual, mystical, magical, self-help stories put together that you can kind of dip in and out of. But the New Testament, the Gospels, are tracking the life and setting of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth in the first century. And we see that this parable has a historical setting. It's in verse 1 of the chapter where we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now sinners might have included the pimps and the prostitutes, the wheelers and dealers and underbelly of the society. Here's this group of them around Jesus. Then you've got this other group described as Pharisees and teachers of the law. These were the uber-religious people of the day. The people who read their Bible, who taught the Bible, who went to synagogue and did a pretty good job of living a moral, upright, impressive life. They're not impressed with this Jesus, this so-called rabbi who's mixing with the riffraff of society. In fact, it's a theme that's been running through Luke's gospel. Jesus keeps hanging out with the wrong people, apparently. So much so that he's uh, described or accused as being a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. There's something surprising when you look at Jesus and who he mixed with. Now, would you want to say that Jesus chilled with sinners? What I wouldn't want to say is that Jesus was chill with sinners, as though he made no judgments about their life at all, live and let live, as though he joined in with them. No, no, no. He actually tells us why he hangs out with these kinds of people. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If your view of God pictures him only as interested in or relevant to religious people, people who are doing a pretty good job at keeping their lives together, then look at Jesus. Because the staggering thing about Jesus is he comes on the scene claiming to be the almighty, eternal, unseen God in the flesh. 
so that he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the unseen God. Do you want to know what God is like? Have a look at Jesus. And many people may be surprised to see the people that Jesus mixes with and the people who are attracted to Jesus. Did you note that sentence one? Tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. They were attracted to him, not the religious people. And I want to offer to you, don't let a bad religious experience that you might have had get in the way of coming to hear about what Jesus has to say God is really like. It's very possible you've had a bad experience with church or with a Christian and now you've got a view of God. But that would be like making your mind up on Shakespeare, having had a bad experience with an actor who was in a Hamlet play down at Laycock. No offence to Laycock people, right? But, but don't, don't let that, don't let an extension of that get in the way of actually who is God. God is not who we might imagine him to be. In fact, we can be sure that God isn't the one we imagine. We're a creature. He is creator. There's the first heading that is surprising about what Jesus says about God. Surprising who this God is. Here's the second word, the second heading. He's generous. Now we come to one of Jesus' most famous parables called the prodigal son. Prodigal has a dual meaning. One of it is reckless. Reckless. We'll come back to the other part later. And it's helpful to have in mind as we go through this parable that Jesus intends us to connect the made-up characters in the story with real-life characters. Right? So he tells this made-up story intending us to understand out where do we fit in the story? How does God fit in the story? And, and to give it away right up top, the father represents God. The father in this story represents God and the two sons represent us, humanity. Let's dive in and I'll pause and kind of dig and pull it apart so we can appreciate what's going on here. Sentence 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Let's just pause there. Now the custom in the first century was the same as it is for us and that is you get your inheritance when? Your parents pass on, when the owner of the estate has died. Uh, My parents, um, God bless them, they've been very content to live in the homes that they have. They've been very basic homes. They've been very content. But more recently, they've started to do some renovations in the house. And I must admit, I find myself inspecting the quality of the work. (laughs) Why? Well, this is my future inheritance. Oh, good, good job. I'm glad to see the value of my future inheritance is going up. Happy to see that, rather than the holiday, the caravan, that kind of thing. But, but there's the point. That's my inheritance in the future. And to come to your parents and say, give me my share now, is effectively to say, I wish you were dead. I have no interest at all in you, in relationship with you. I just want your stuff. That's what this younger son has done to his father. Now, the people who are originally sitting around Jesus, people who live in an honour-shame culture, can you imagine 
where they think the story might go next. What? You can't do that. What a shameful thing. Man, I bet you the father's about to give it to him. He's going to give him what for? Knock him into next week. To borrow a 70s, 80s parenting expression. But instead we read on. So he, the father, divided his property between them. The son gets what he wanted without the right judgment that he deserved immediately. The the father, the family, is greatly shamed. You can picture him having to put a for sale sign on the property. Great shame. And yet he does it. And he generously gives his son what he's asked for. Just as God does to a world that has turned its back on him. So you remember the father represents God. And you know what the Bible says is at the heart of greatest evil? A failure to honour and give thanks. At the the heart of the greatest evil, a failure to honour God as God, to give thanks to God. Now, yes, it plays out in all other kinds of ways, but that's at the heart of evil, says the Bible. That humanity, you and me, have set our heart's desires not on God, not on relationship with him, but the stuff that we can get from him. We have pursued the gifts and not the giver. Now for Ian, super helpful to hear his story, that was surfing. What has it been for you? Is it family? Is it career? Is it travel? Is it all of us? have actually turned away from God as creator and honoured him and given thanks to him to pursue freedom with just his stuff. But here's the staggering thing. God generously allows us to do that. I mean, if that's true, that we've treated God this way, that there is a just judgment that could come immediately on those who treat God with such shame? Wow. Jesus, in fact, says... God causes the same sun to shine and the rain to fall on both his enemies and his friends. I don't know what your picture of God is, but Jesus keeps saying, he's a generous God. He acts generously towards those who have rejected him. Like the father who sells the estate, who gives it to his son. There's the second heading. God is a generous God. Here's the third. He's compassionate. This younger son, after he's got all the stuff from his father and now he can head off and live it up. And live it up he does. All the, all the blessing of his father's stuff without the burden of relationship with the father. And he's free. He's living the dream. Or so he thought. I was listening to one of my favourite artists, singer-songwriter, a favourite band, been following them for 25 years, and listening to something he said this week. He, he said, yeah, at a, in my 20s, I achieved my dreams. It was the worst thing that's ever happened to me. He said, because where do you go after that? We, we have this idea of what the good life, the free life, the dream life will be. One of the greatest problems is actually achieving your dreams. Well, this guy finds himself in a mess. He's run out of money, he's working in pig slop, and he's jealous of the pig food. And this key point 
in the story comes, verse 17. Super key. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. He realises how badly he's treated his father and he decides not to stay in the mess, pretend it's not messy, just there's a moment of humility here where he comes to his senses to head home. But can you imagine that trip home? Can you imagine how terrifying that would be in light of how shamefully he has treated his father? And so he, he practices the best sorry speech he can come up with. Can you relate to that? A sorry speech that you're practicing as you head home or headed home to tell your parents something that you've done, that you're just terrified of. For me, the thing that comes to mind was as a, a much younger, stupid man, um, coming home in the middle of the night, having to tell my parents that I'd crashed their car into soccer goalposts whilst chasing rabbits <laughs> on the school level, right? Oh, how do you break that one? How does that sorry speech go? And I'm terrified. I went with the tact of breaking the news to them at three in the morning. You know, I woke them up, hoped the, uh, the, the sleepiness might work on my side. I've crashed the car, but, but I'm all right. I'm all right. Don't worry about me. I'm okay. Well, this young man heads home, no doubt, no doubt terrified. Nervous about the reception that he's going to receive. Rightly so. Rightly so. Verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. What a picture Jesus is giving us of our God as he truly is. Do you remember the son had in his sorry speech this plan to make me like one of your servants. Maybe I can make this right by working off the debt. He says to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can get to that part about let me make it up to you, his father cuts in and says, verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. The robe, the ring, sandals, these are all privileges of a son, not a slave, not a servant. The father will have none of this. Let me try and make it up to you. He says, get here. And embraces him again as a son. This is a picture of full forgiveness. No strings attached. Nothing more to pay. That's something we struggle with, isn't it? Just this week, I noticed in my coffee grinder, the beans are getting low, low and low. And if you're like me, and coffee is a very important part to the start of your day, I'm going, ooh, I reckon about two days, I've got to fill those beans back up. And I said to my wife, who was heading past the cafe, hey, can you grab some beans? Yeah, yeah, no worries. And uh, that night I said, did you get the beans? 
Oh, sorry, forgot. Okay, I think we can squeeze by one more day. Can you get them tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, no worries. Next day, did you get the beans? Oh, I'm sorry. And I forgave her. The next morning, I got up really, really early and Laddie went, I'm just off to get some coffee beans. <laughs> I'll, be back in a, I'll be back in a minute. Love you. you know? Really humble. Really forgiving. I wanted to just know that she... No, no, no. I, now, silly example. Because it's quite hard for us to think about the things that really hurt us, the things that are so hard to forgive. Why is it so hard for us to forgive? Because we've been wounded so seriously by the, the wrong against us, the injustice against us, that, that has wounded us. And then to have someone seek forgiveness and us to offer it, it's a second kick in the guts. Because I don't have the opportunity to seek revenge or restitution, but rather swallow again the pain of now working for their good, seeking their good. This father who restored... Isn't this staggering? Again, just jump, jump into the world of this story. That the son has treated this father so shamefully that he would just say, come here. This is a God who is full with compassion. Faced with our rebellion towards him, Instead of bringing immediate judgment that would be deserved, he welcomes with open arms any who would come to their senses and return. Now, the challenge for us is to place ourselves in this story. We're like, no, I don't think I really have rebelled against God. Um, Some of you don't have that problem. You're like, yeah, actually, this prodigal, yeah, kind of sums up my life. I've made a spectacular mess of it. I've made a mess of people's lives around me. Maybe it is substance abuse, violence, cheating, lying, scamming, whatever. Many more of us, it's been the more respectable rebellion against God. You know, working hard to be good people, but again, just being those people who are only interested in the gifts and not the giver, who have sought deeper satisfaction in our family, the nest or the career or the whatever. The confronting message of Jesus is that instead of freedom, we've found slavery as we've sought life apart from God. But the amazing comfort is that as we return home, we find a father, get this, who never gave up on us. See, notice there, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Jesus is inviting us to picture a father who got up every day, and would look out his door to the edges of his property, is this the day that my son's coming home? And every day that he doesn't, his heart grows heavier until the day when he does come and he runs. Now, this is a detail that is kind of lost on us in our culture. But in the first century, grown men didn't run. Just It wasn't the thing, which sounds pretty good to me, actually. I haven't run in over 10 years, but that's because of injuries. Um, Grown men in this day didn't run because it was shameful, culturally. It would have meant having to hitch their robe up and bare their naked legs. Just a cultural, contextual thing that wouldn't be done. He doesn't care. 
He is so filled with compassion for this son. He doesn't care what anyone thinks of him. Such is the love for his son that he's back, that he will run, he will bear the shame, he will embrace the son. There's the third part of the picture that Jesus gives us of our God who is a God of amazing compassion. Not chilled, not chilled, but compassionate. And here's the fourth heading. A God who is glad. Now there's actually a second part to this story. We only read the first part. Let's have a look at the second part because there's a second son, of course. And meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older brother is angry. Why? Why is he not celebrating and glad like the father? I'll suggest at least a couple of reasons. Firstly, because he doesn't truly know his father's heart. All these years of being close to the father and he doesn't actually know him. He, he, he thinks of his father in transactional terms, a boss who needs a bank, not relational terms. A father who's not interested in mere rule keeping, but in relationship which is why he goes to such lengths to have the rule-breaking son back in relationship. And it's why he does so, not kind of um, begrudgingly, but joyfully. Did you catch that? He says, we had to celebrate, we had to be glad. This totally challenges the picture of God who is distant and disinterested. Or a God who's only ever harsh and serious and sour or like a grumpy old man who really does need to chill out a bit. In fact, just before this parable of the lost son, Jesus has told a couple of other parables of a lost coin and a lost sheep. And he describes the great joy that he's had when finding the one lost sheep out of a hundred. And he says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. What's Jesus saying about God? Heaven is a place of unmatched gladness. God is a God of greater joy than we can imagine. God isn't just into party vibes. He's not just living for Friday night. He's living for his sons and daughters. 
He's living for the honour he has as he receives his sons and daughters. There's the first reason this older brother is angry. Because they don't truly know, he doesn't truly know his father. Second thing going on though I suspect for the older brother is a sense of injustice. And kind of understandably so. How is it just for this father to forgive and forget this younger brother? Like really, after the way that he's treated him, it's just okay to have him back? Does wrong not matter? Is it okay to just do what you want and it'll all be okay? We'll forgive and forget? Well, this injustice, justice issue doesn't get unpacked and dealt with in this parable. And we're going to actually consider it in coming weeks of this series. So tune in for that. But there is a third son in this account. Jesus, the Son of God. The eternal Son of God who took on flesh, became one of us, and he said he did this to seek and save the lost. And eight chapters later, Luke will record this son, Jesus, crucified between criminals, suffering the most amazing shame reserved for sinners, not because he was one, not because he deserved it, but because he was taking the place of sinners. The rebellious flavour, the religious flavour, all of those who have failed to honour God, to give thanks to God, to live in relationship with God, Jesus dies and takes the punishment that these people deserve so that they don't have to. And that and that alone becomes the grounds that God can now welcome any and every person back into his arms with tears. Not because he's taken lightly our sin, our wrong, but because he's dealt with it justly in Jesus. There's four words, four descriptions that form a picture of God that Jesus gives us here. Maybe surprising for you. Generous, long-sufferingly generous, compassionate and glad, rejoicing in relationship with those who would come to their senses. Would it be good news if God was more chill, like Buddha? No, because it would be at odds with love. There are times when it is good and right to be chilled. And there are other times when it would be the opposite of love. You know, for the prodigal son who headed off from home, would it have been good news for him if his dad was more chill? If his dad went, oh well, I'll just live and let live. He can deal with the mess that he's made. I've got another son here, I'll worry about him. Of course not. It was good news for this prodigal son that his dad was anything but chill. That he was intensely, passionately jealous for relationship with this son that had walked away. And took on the shame that he did to receive him back and embrace him. It's the same for us. Which is why the father actually represents a prodigal God. See, prodigal can mean reckless, the prodigal son, wild living. It can also mean lavish, extravagant. 
And that's who Jesus says our God is. That his love is so lavish, so extravagant, that he will look for those that have thrown it in his face. As they turn and come back, he will run to and embrace with tears of joy any and all who come back. Christianity is not about a bunch of rules to keep, religious hoops to jump through. It's about the most amazing rescue and restoration in history. Forgiveness by God. Brought back into life and relationship with him now. To be known and enjoyed now and into eternity. Into the best life that is yet to come. Is God chill? No. And it is such good news for us that he's not. The picture of the real God might surprise us. He's generous. He's compassionate. He's glad. And it has been such an amazing joy for us as a church for years and years and years now to just keep doing our best to go, here's what Jesus has to say about who God really is. And to see people recognise their need to come back and their ability to come back to a God who will embrace them and who will never let go of them. And if you haven't done that, we are so glad that you are with us checking out the things of Jesus. It's our prayer that like the other mugs and wretches in this church, there is absolutely nothing special about us. And he said, what am I doing up here? There's nothing special. Exactly. That's who we are. But we have come to know an extraordinary God, a prodigal God. We would love for you to know him too. So keep tuning into this series. Keep checking these things out of Jesus. They're life-changing and eternity-changing. Let me pray for us. Well, Lord God, we thank you for your many gifts to us, including these words that were faithfully recorded of Jesus faithfully preserved and handed down to us so that we might get a true glimpse into who you are, into who we are, into our great need for you, but the great love and lengths that you've gone to have us back. Keep sharpening our view of you. Keep showing us where we've just imagined things. We've got things wrong. We've heard rumour. Keep showing us who you truly are. And, and, and for those who haven't come back to you as Father, please, might they know they can, that you haven't given up on them, that this word today is your gift to them to say, come home. And for those of us who have, may we stay home where we know and appreciate just what a great Father we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.